we would not have today or have had in the past a civil rights movement. We would not have had a women's rights movement. We wouldn't have had a gay rights movement if it wasn't for free speech. If people were allowed to suppress the ideas that they thought to be hateful and offensive and dangerous in those eras, that speech would have been silent. If you really feel like a speaker is causing you or your friends real harm, um, then you, however much you may believe in free speech and in diversity of views and in offensive speech and speech you don't like, this feels like violence. This feels like someone is not just speaking, they're punching your friend in the mouth, right? This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today, we'll be discussing free speech. Most people think free speech is a good thing, essential for democracy and the free exchange of ideas. But we're in the midst of a national debate about the limits of free speech. In the wake of hate group rallies and protests on college campuses, people wonder, should the government and universities be free to impose more limits on the range of what people can say? Free speech is particularly special to the University of Chicago, as the university has a history of strongly defending free speech on campus. We separately interviewed two University of Chicago law school professors who have extensively researched free speech. Jeffrey Stone, the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor, and Genevieve Lakier, Assistant Professor of Law. Before we look at the law, let's talk about free speech generally. What's at stake? What are its goals? And why is it important? Well, free speech is the way in which we seek truth and understanding. That's Professor Stone. And one of the things that I have learned over time and the Supreme Court has learned over time is that we cannot trust others to determine for us what truth is. And because we know over time that what people thought was the truth often turned out not to be. Uh, and therefore, it is essential to be open to hearing all competing ideas and positions uh, and to recognize that what you think to be true may not be true. On the one hand, free speech is thought to be essential for finding truth. But free speech is not truly free. There are harms. Speech can be offensive, it can be threatening, and perhaps not everyone bears these costs equally. Stigmatic harms that speech does is very real and very present. This idea that speech can be violence. I agree with that, by the way. Speech can be violence. I completely think that. That's Professor Lakier. So I think what, in part this is because um, some of these views are, you know, we like the First Amendment, we like free speech in theory. But in practice, we're very confused about how do you deal with stigmatic harms. And the, the courts and the administrators, the government officials are not helping at all. There are at least two competing values. On the one hand, a rigorous marketplace of speech thought necessary to help us find the truth. But on the other hand, we want to limit the harms caused by offensive or hateful speech. How has the law developed to balance these concerns? Let's begin with the history of free speech law. But in the 18th and 19th century, free speech doctrine, specifically First Amendment doctrine, looked really different than it does today. Okay, so for one thing, the First Amendment didn't apply to the states. Now, this wasn't such a big deal because every state constitution included some form of a free speech or free expression guarantee. And these were generally understood to mean the same thing as the First Amendment. Courts looked to one another to interpret uh, the meaning of freedom of speech. But it did mean that it was mostly state courts rather than federal courts that were enforcing free speech rights prior to the 20th century. Okay, and also, but more importantly, the guarantee of freedom of speech was understood to protect really only non-harmful speech. 
It was often said that the Constitution protected liberty, right, the liberty to speak, but not license. So not the right to engage in um, what was understood to be offensive speech or immoral speech or um, threatening speech. And so what this meant was that courts understood the First Amendment or the parallel state constitutional guarantees of free speech to mean that the government couldn't restrain your speech in advance. It couldn't tell you tell its citizens, you may not speak in public. It couldn't censor speech in that way. But if when you spoke, you chose to say something that was considered immoral or improper, blasphemous, heretical, against public order, you could be criminally punished. And the First Amendment or the state constitutional guarantees did nothing about it. Okay, so this changed dramatically over the course of the New Deal period. So between, you know, the early 1930s and the mid-1940s, when the court recognized for the first time that speech possessed constitutional value, even when it appeared unpleasant or offensive or harmful to the majority or to the state or federal judges who represented a particular worldview. Um, and they recognized that this was the case because what looks like offensive or harmful or immoral speech to some looks like pure truth to others. And they recognized, uh, you know, gave constitutional value for the first time to this idea of diversity, that really what the First Amendment encourages and guarantees is diversity of speech, diversity of thought and expression, because the majority may be wrong in what it thinks is harmful or harmless or good or bad or offensive or the other, and that it's up to popular debate and discussion to work these um, questions out, not up to the government. And so the scope of the First Amendment expanded dramatically at this time. So not only did it now apply to the states, which meant that suddenly federal courts got involved in a whole lot of issues that they were outside of their purview before. So it's changed the scope, expanded in that way. But it also meant that it applied to new kinds of speech, speech that in the 19th century would have been criminalized without any problem. And in the early 20th century, the Supreme Court began thinking differently about free speech gradually broadening the right, while at the same time crafting limitations. So uh, initially, when the Supreme Court first confronted the meaning of, of the First Amendment in 1919 during World War I, uh, it basically adopted the view that speech could be prohibited as long as it had a bad tendency. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, it upheld the convictions of individuals who had criticized World War I or criticized the draft uh, on the theory that that speech could cause harm. That is, that speech could cause people to refuse induction into the military. That could interfere with the war effort. It could lead soldiers to be insubordinate. It could encourage the enemy to believe that if they just keep up the fight, that we will eventually give up. Um, and so the notion was that if speech has a bad tendency, then it can be restricted. Uh, and over time, the court came to recognize gradually that that was a, a disaster for a democracy. Uh, and that, that basically preventing people from voicing their views about matters of public policy and public interest uh, crippled the ability of citizens to, to hear competing views, to decide what was in the best, best interest. Was the draft a good idea? Was being in the war a good idea? Should people be able to question that was something the court eventually came around to recognizing was essential. But it took a long time. It took 50 years for the Supreme Court to get around to the point of concluding that speech that tries to restrict the advocacy of particular points of view um, cannot be punished unless the speech has a clear and present danger of grave harm, a test that the court has basically said has not been satisfied in the half century since then. Um, So um, it has been a learning experience. Uh, There are exceptions. The court has said that there's there's, um, certain speech that does not further the values of the First Amendment, like false statements of fact or threats, 
um, or commercial advertising. And it is said that the, the, that kind of speech can be regulated to a greater degree than the effort to bring ideas into public discourse. Um, but even there, over time, it has come to recognize that censorship, even of those categories of speech, uh, tends to be overdone and tends to impair in serious ways the freedom of individuals to um, to convey their views. And so it's even increased the degree of, of First Amendment protection for the categories of speech like that. So if you think of obscenity, for example, um, there was a time when it was uh, thought to be appropriate to make it illegal for anyone to, to see anything that was remotely sexual or even to use words that were sexual in a novel. Um, and today we've come a long distance from that um, because the court itself has come around to the view that such expression uh, may be offensive. It may be harmful in some ways, but the better response to it is to let people uh, act for themselves and avoid the speech when they want to and to respond to it to the extent they think it has a bad effect on people. Uh, over the years, uh, the Supreme Court has learned from its own mistakes that situations where it thought it was appropriate for the government to be allowed to suppress the speech of individuals um, turned out to be errors of judgment on their part. Uh, and so over time, the protection of free speech uh, recognized has gotten more expansive. And I think that that commitment is correct. And I think it's wise. Uh, that isn't to say there aren't circumstances when it's appropriate to restrict free speech. But the, the basic presumption, particularly when it comes to suppressing ideas with which one disagrees, is that government should be able to do that only in extraordinary circumstances. So the court has never protected all types of speech. There's always been some kinds of speech that can be censored. So this leads some to wonder, can we censor hate speech while keeping the current law largely intact? I think that there is room for the doctrine to accommodate these concerns uncomfortably and with difficulty. I think these, I, I just think there's no getting away from the fact that these are very difficult questions, very difficult problems. But I do think First Amendment doctrine could do a better job of accommodating these concerns than it does currently. So currently, hate speech is unprotected, although the court does recognize that threat, a true threat, is um, is low-value speech and can be prohibited or criminalized, but it construes that very, very narrowly. So so one way, sure, one way would be to expand the categories. The easiest way, the easiest route to go, the thing that would destabilize the doctrine the least and would do some good, although I don't think it would go nearly as far as these critics would want, is to expand the category of threats. So the court really recognizes threats and has very recently narrowed it even further by requiring a heightened mens rea standard for when you prosecute someone for threats. But as a result, you know, there's a whole lot of threatening speech out there that does chill other people's speech and does raise questions about equality and fairness, these concerns that you talked about, um, that just isn't considered a true threat under First Amendment doctrine. So one way the court could go is it could expand that category or it could recognize, as people have asked it to recognize for decades, and critics have written that it should uh, recognize for decades, it could recognize a new category of low-value speech called hate speech. And that maybe could include racist speech and xenophobic speech, misogynistic speech, um, maybe you could, you know, think about some forms of obscenity falling within that uh, category as well. So the idea of speech that is offensive or hateful um, is basically restricting a point of view. And what the Supreme Court has rightly, in my view, concluded is that we do not trust government or courts to decide what points of view are not worthy of hearing and debating. And uh, therefore, the Supreme Court has unanimously, uh, just last term, 
um, it made clear that speech that's hateful is not um, of low value and it's fully protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and this is the position the court has taken uh, for the past 50 years, uh, basically with, without hesitation. And in my view, correctly, because although I might find lots of ideas myself, stupid and hateful and dangerous and harmful, I don't trust the government, think about the current government, uh, to make judgments for me about which ideas it thinks we should be able to express. But what about when free speech conflicts with other core values? The value of free speech automatically and always conflicts with whatever values people think they're serving when they want to suppress free speech. So it, it can conflict with the desire for peacefulness. It can conflict with the desire uh, to suppress communism. It can conflict with the desire to fight a war. Um, so free speech always conflicts with other values. That's the whole point of it. As a general proposition, uh, the right solution is not censorship. Uh, as a general proposition, with some exceptions, but as a general proposition, uh, the right approach is to recognize that the way to protect the other values is by addressing the arguments and the positions that one thinks are wrong and are offensive and to persuade others that they are wrong uh, and not to try to silence them because if you silence them, they can turn around and silence you. What's the right way to fight bad speech and bad ideas? Well, the, the proper response to ideas that one disagrees with is to counter those ideas. And it can be to counter them in writing, it can be counter them in counter protests, there are all sorts of ways of doing that, both at the moment and in general. And that's, that's what the basic principle of free speech is about. It's what people like Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis understood and advocated for, and they were right about that. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't other circumstances when somebody directly threatens somebody with violence that you can't arrest them for that. Um, and for that matter, when somebody disrupts a speaker, you can arrest them for that disruption because that's not free speech protected by the First Amendment. But insofar as the question is how to counter ideas and views that one disagrees with, um, the proper way to do that in a, a civilized democracy is by taking the other side, advocating for it, and not trying to shut them down. And not only because it's the wrong thing to do, but again, because it will lead to you being shut down. And that's what people have to understand is that, again, we would not have had a civil rights movement if white Southerners were allowed to shut down civil rights speakers. Um, and we would not have had a gay rights movement if people who were opposed to gay rights were allowed to basically shut them down and disrupt them. And uh, this is the two-edged sword, and people need to understand that. And particularly minority groups need to understand that, because ultimately, in the long run, they are the ones who are most vulnerable to being suppressed. But not everyone agrees that fighting speech with speech does enough. Professor Lakier suggests changing free speech law. The law should look not to the value of what somebody says, but how harmful it is. Um, I would prefer thinking instead about the First Amendment doctrine in a more flexible and dynamic way than we currently do. So right now, what the court seems to think is that if speech is protected or if it's high value speech, if it doesn't fall into one of these really narrow categories, then there are very few limits on how the government can regulate it. it can regulate it in a content neutral way in these kinds of ways. But if it regulates it, with any concern towards its content, then the it's a straitjacket. The First Amendment is a straitjacket, and in doing that, the court doesn't isn't willing to recognize the kinds of harms that speech can create, the chilling effect that speech can create, the threat to equality and fairness that speech can create, and so 
you know, there are two ways you can think about distinguishing speech. One is in terms of its value, and this is how it's traditionally done it, but I think it's a really kind of problematic way of doing it. And one is in terms of its harms. And although First Amendment doctrine does recognize some kinds of harms that can allow the government to regulate, very, very few. It recognizes very, very few. So I think that there is room to to expand that, to say, you know, it's not up us up to courts to say, speech you fall in this box, high value. Speech you fall in this box, low value. And that's for all intents and purposes. Speech is high value. We're going to say speech is high value. We're going to protect it. Except we're going to recognize that in certain cases with respect to certain kinds of harms, all speech, any speech might be regulable if it causes those harms. If it seriously chills the ability of other people to participate in public sphere. Um, or if it, you know, threatens violence in a kind of imminent way. Um, I don't see why, given that, then we would need this first first um, step inquiry into whether it's high value, low value speech. If speech is causing these harms, then I think the government can regulate with respect to those harms. It cannot regulate to protect itself against criticism. It cannot regulate in these other ways. Um, but it can regulate if it's genuine, if there is a genuine problem that we recognize. What does this mean for college campuses? First, let's examine what's at stake. Why exactly do some people wish to restrict some types of speech on college campuses? Could that speech itself actually undermine the freedom of speech by intimidating some people such that they do not feel welcome to enter the marketplace of ideas? Hate speech does seem to be, to me, to be wrong, uh, but I am enough of a, I've drunk enough of the Kool-Aid. I really believe in the principle of the First Amendment. It's just not up to courts to say what is wrong or right speech. So that is not the argument that I, that I think is the winner. But there's this other argument, which is to say, okay, so say you're a minority and you're on campus and there's a lot of speech that says you're, shouldn't be here. Okay. You're an immigrant. Foreigners go home. They're dirty and, um, engage in criminal behavior and are not so smart and just got here because of liberal, uh, admissions offices. And you're 19 or 20 and you just got to this school and maybe you feel like you shouldn't be there, right? Cause there's imposter syndrome. Lots of people feel it. And you're maybe, you know, you're struggling in classes and, and you feel threatened and undermined by that speech in part because you've heard it so many times and sort of echoes inside. And so next time there's a campus debate or um, a group that you are thinking about participating in, you think, ah, but maybe I don't belong here and maybe they'll think it's terrible for me to be here and maybe I should just go back to my room. And that in a very easy and understandable way, I think a lot of um, us can understand why someone might have that reaction to this kind of speech, really could potentially chill the ability of minorities to participate or whoever is the, whoever is the target of the speech to participate, particularly if the speech is simply the latest iteration of stuff that's been said for many, many years. Lawyers are always worried about, you know, if the government or the doctrine doesn't, um, doesn't respond to what are really widely held social views, social preferences, social harms, then people are just going to take it into their own hands. And that's what we see. It's not at all surprising. It's understandable given their view of the world. There's real problem of a free-for-all. We want to have a vibrant public sphere. We want to have vibrant debate, but we do not want to have a free-for-all, both because it's just crazy and we don't think that's good and also because that chills people's speech that prevents people from participating these are very much the concerns the court had in the 30s and 40s and they are very much the concerns that a lot of these students have today they feel like they cannot participate or their friends cannot participate if in campus you know the there's two there's a lot of speech that is denigrating or stigmatizing them
one of the challenges I think institutions of higher education are now facing in a way they didn't really face before is the fact that you have students who now make clear that they want to be heard and feel that they're not able to be heard. Now, this was always true. I mean, one of the things I learned is is after all these issues began arising a couple of years ago, I went back to some of my students from 30 years in the past, minority students, women students, and who I know well, and said, when you were a student, were there times when you felt that people said things that really hurt or offended you that you didn't respond to? And they said, well, yeah, to be honest, that it, it did happen. And I said, why didn't you respond? And they said, well, I would have been seen as kind of a whiner. And, you know, particularly feeling like a bit of an outsider, that only would have exacerbated the situation. Uh, and so I think what we're seeing now is interesting, is that in part what we're seeing is the representation of, of those groups is much greater than it was before. So that's a good thing. They have much greater power than they did as individuals. Um, but to the extent they still feel some of that same way, it's important to empower them and to make them feel more comfortable about expressing their views. And, and the fact is because there's so many more people in these different groups now in, in the academic communities, they do feel more empowered and, and less uh, alone than they did in the past. But while one can intuitively understand the worries on campus, does this justify some of the responses there? Protesting and shouting down speakers with whom students disagree. Well, they're, they're completely inappropriate responses. Um, and again, it's, it's interesting for people to understand the context in which this became clear. I mean, the Supreme Court first directly resolved this issue in a way that is the controlling law today during the Civil Rights Movement, when white Southerners um, tried to prevent civil rights marchers and civil rights speakers from having their say. And the Supreme Court said, no, you cannot do that. That's not an appropriate response to freedom of speech. And it's not protected by the First Amendment. And indeed, the obligation of the, of the government is to, is to prohibit the disruption and the, and the interference with free speech. And that was the correct insight and a fundamentally correct one. And so I think in this instance, it's again important for people to understand that this kind of response to free speech is not what free speech means. And it's not what a democracy is based on. It's what chaos is based upon. Um, and that the proper response to speakers you don't like is to basically uh, criticize their views and hold counter protests that don't interfere with their speech. And, and indeed worse than that, I think what people are doing today, uh, is, is being particularly, um, thoughtless because one of the things that many of these speakers, not so much Charles Murray, but some of the others like Ann Coulter and, and Milo Yiannopoulos are doing is exploiting these people um, because nobody really wants to hear them speak. What's really happening is they're going around to these different universities and campuses to give speeches because the opponents will then turn it into news headlines and make them famous and they can sell books and they can invite it to more places. And what they're doing is completely not only inconsistent with free speech, but inconsistent with their own self-interest because what they're doing is giving these people power and visibility. So at some point they need to understand that this is a completely wrong response. First of all, it's wrong because it's wrong. It's not what our legal system or our culture should permit. But second of all, it's wrong because it's, it's counter, it's counterproductive. It simply empowers the people they're trying to undermine. And that's just foolish. But what about the argument that the marketplace of ideas is not equally balanced, and that current free speech protections protect the speech rights of the powerful at the expense of minorities and other vulnerable people? First of all, it's always true that that in any conversation, in 
in the political arena, in the public arena, they're not evenly balanced. More people take one view than the other. More people like the war than dislike the war. Or more people dislike the war than like the war. Whatever. That's just built into the reality. It's more complicated here because the groups involved in some instances have been historically disadvantaged and oppressed and, and it's harder for them. But on the other hand, it's important to understand in university communities, they're the majority. Not the majority in terms of the, the, the minority or, or sexual orientation, but in terms of the attitudes and viewpoints. The minorities in, in university communities are the conservatives. They're the evangelicals. They're the ones who are actually the ones in need of, of protection. The truth is this is a dominant group silencing a minority group in these particular communities. And so it's doubly perverse. And I think they don't understand that. But at least in, at least in these communities, the empowered ones are the people talking about racial justice and gender justice and sexual orientation justice and so on. And the disempowered ones are the people who oppose those views. Uh, so they've got it kind of backwards, at least in these communities. Is it possible that restricting free speech can backfire for precisely those groups advocating to restrict free speech? Well, absolutely. As they go out into the world where there are no restrictions on speech of the sort that they're trying to impose here and where um, they're no longer in, in a community that largely shares their own views, um, they will find themselves in a position where the people, the majority of people in those communities will want to silence them. And, you know, no more Black Lives Matter, no more kneeling, right? I mean, that's the world that they're out, that's out there. And they have to understand that if they legitimate censorship, that they are empowering the people who will silence them in the real world. And that's a terrible mistake strategically. The best interest of minority groups, whether it's political minorities, religious minorities, doesn't matter. It's free speech. That's what fundamentally protects them. And if they start winning the day here, they will lose the day out there in a way that's in many ways much more profound and much more important. You wouldn't want to just allow these claims to be you know, hyperbolic. You would want some evidence. And so, sure, if Trump supporters or evangelical Christians can show that they, they their speech has been chilled, then why not recognize that as a real harm that we should take seriously? That said, the it, the likelihood that the um, the effects of derogatory speech will have these kinds of stigmatic harms on their targets are going to be greater when you're dealing with a population that has been subject to this kind of that uh, to the, both this kind of speech and to all other forms of sort of structural inequality, structural violence, some people say, but forms of social practice that treat them as second class or, or marginalize their participation, then you are to um, populations that haven't experienced that, right? For obvious reasons. If this is the first time you're ever hearing anyone insulting you, then you're going to be like, you're an idiot. But if this is the hundredth time, its effect is going to be different. And so one might see simply as an empirical matter that the effects of this are not evenly spread. They're not um, neutral across the population. They are particularly concentrated in particular groups for understandable reasons. So that presents a question. Why now? Why this debate over free speech? This is in some ways a similar problem to what we faced in the 30s and 40s, and we faced it again in the 60s and 70s. You know, it seems like every 30 years there's this fight about our collective speech norms and what are the limits on what's acceptable in the public sphere and this recognition that there have to be some limits, but where do we, where do we place them? I don't think there's any bad, any problem with us having a, I think a very rich ongoing 
collective conversation about where we want those limits to be today, I think that's much better than just saying, nope, these are the limits we have. We're not going to think about them, whether they're good or bad, whether they're majority favoring or minority favoring. We're just going to stick to them because we have free speech and we're not going to revisit the issue. We are revisiting that issue. We're not revisiting it in the courts. The courts are out of the picture, and I think that's really unfortunate, but we are revisiting it in on college campuses. We're revisiting it in the newspaper. We're revisiting on the internet, and it's a great conversation to be had. It's not a conversation that people are engaging in with the view that we're, this is going to end the First Amendment or we don't like the First Amendment. It's within the, this broad, capacious, complicated First Amendment tradition we built for ourselves. We're saying, okay, we believe in freedom of speech, but what are the limits? That's a great conversation to be had. And I think it's a conversation we should continue to have for, forever. It's not something we're ever going to finally solve. Uh, students are living in a different society than people lived in before. Social media has had a major impact. And uh, when I was growing up, uh, it was very unusual to encounter anything that would today be called hate speech. Um, mainstream media would never present that. And although it's true that on occasion you might hear something really ugly uh, and nasty in a locker room or somewhere like that, uh, most of your life was lived without ever encountering that. Uh, today, with social media, uh, young people are encountering much more of that. And I think that has led them to be much more sensitive to the harm that it causes, much more uh, empathetic to their classmates and their friends who are the targets of such speech, uh, it, it presents a real challenge for educational institutions to figure out how to um, inform this generation of students, how to reconcile their abstract commitment to freedom of speech with their on-the-ground uh, betrayal of their commitment to free speech. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This week's episode has been produced by Tom Malloy and John Tinkett. Thank you to our entire online team, including Noelle Ottman, Grace Bridwell, Tom Garvey, and Catherine Running. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Pat Ward, and executive editor, Kyle Jorstedt. Music by bensound.com. Thanks for listening.